Hi, welcome to episode 11 of Painting the Corners, Baseball and International Affairs podcast. I'm your host, Lincoln Mitchell. We're going to introduce our guests in a few minutes, but first I just want to go over some logistics for the show. First, if you need to reach me for any reason to discuss the show, provide some feedback, maybe you want to appear on the show, you can email me at lincoln at lincolnmitchell.com. My Twitter handle is at lincolnmitchell. I want to let you know about a couple of upcoming book events for my new book, Will Big League Baseball Survive? Globalization, the End of Television, Youth Sports, and the Future of Major League Baseball. That book was published by Temple University Press about a month or two ago. I will be at Bergino Baseball Clubhouse, which is on 11th Street in Manhattan, Thursday, December 1st. This podcast should go up uh, Wednesday, so it's tomorrow if you're listening now. Thursday, December 1st, that's at 7 p.m. The following Thursday at the Baseball Center on Broadway and 74th Street, I will also be uh, having, having a book event. We'll be discussing the book, signing copies. That's at 74th and Broadway at 7 p.m. on the 8th. And then on January 27th in San Francisco at the San Francisco Baseball Academy, also at 7 p.m., that I believe is a Friday night. We'll have a similar book event. And for those of you in the Bay Area, this is where the Bridge Theater used to be. Maybe I'm dating myself. San Franciscans of my generation, we tend to orient ourselves by where things used to be because no much, so much has changed. But this is where the Bridge Theater used to be, which is Geary and, and Blake, which is several landmarks near there, the University of San Francisco, also Rossi Playground, where I played high school baseball. Uh, so I hope you can make it to one of those events. I've also have been continuing to write on domestic politics on the Huffington Post, and I know we talk on and off about domestic politics on this podcast, but if you're interested in more of my thoughts there, please uh, check out my writings there. You can access this podcast. If you're listening to it now, you've already figured out a way to access it, but let me, know about, let, let me tell you about the other ways. On, through my website, www.lincolnmitchell.com, and then you just go to Painting the Corners. You can also get this on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher, please rate and review us. That is helpful. It helps generate interest, raise more awareness of the podcast. So let me turn to our guests. And we are, after last week's podcast, where we focused on the Caribbean, particularly on Cuba, we're back in the former Soviet Union uh, this week with, for our international affairs guests. And that's because we had an opportunity to get somebody really extraordinary. Arakli Alassania served as the Minister of Defense of Georgia from 2012 to 2014. Before becoming part of the cabinet in 2014, Arakli's political party, the Free Democrats, joined in a broad coalition called the Georgian Dream and swept the 2012 parliamentary elections. That was quite a, uh, a big surprise to, to many in the world, particularly not so much in Georgia, where people had a sense of what was going on, but to many observers. Before uh, that, Arakli was the permanent representative of Georgia to the United Nations, where he was the key negotiator there for Georgia. He also has worked in various other capacities with the Georgian government. He was the president's special envoy for the Georgia-Abkhaz peace talks uh, in 2005. Uh, in 2004, he was appointed as the deputy minister of defense and deputy secretary of the National Security Council. He has been involved in Georgian security issues for you know, 20 years now. He also has completed the Army and Intelligence Office, of course, at the U.S. Army and Intelligence Center and school in Fort Hutchins in 1997. Arakli is Georgian, and uh, if you want to learn more about him, uh, as, like many Georgians, he has a big Facebook presence. So there's three places you can see him on Facebook. One is Alasanya Arakli, one is Alasanya Free Democrats, and one is Arakli Alas Arakli period Alasanya period three. And Arakli is kind of as it sounds: I R A K K L I. Alasanya is A L A S A N I A. So it's kind of a simple, the simpler spelling. Don't complicate it with additional S's and you know other silent letters. Joe Sheehan is our baseball writer uh, this week and our baseball guest this week. And if you 
read about baseball or follow baseball, Joe is not going to be a new name to you. He's been writing and talking in public about baseball for more than 20 years. I'm sure he's been talking about baseball in general for longer than that. He's a founding member of Baseball Prospectus and a longtime contributor to Sports Illustrated. He has been on ESPN, the Embassy Sports Network, and SNY. He also recently started writing for the, for Athletic, the Athletic Chicago, and he publishes a subscription newsletter. Uh, the Joe Sheehan baseball newsletter kind of looks at the game from the standpoint of an informed, passionate fan, which is also my approach to the game. I'm an outsider. I don't have any... Uh, kind of special information or access, but it is really a great newsletter. It costs about 40 bucks a year to subscribe, and it, it's great baseball reading very frequently. You're not getting it once a month or once a week. It's usually much more frequently than that. During the postseason, it, it's daily, and if you fall behind, it, you, you know, it, it's, but it's, it's a great way to spend, you know, 20 minutes reading, thinking, and becoming engaged as a fan, no matter where you are in the world. For information about that, you can go to his Facebook page, which is Sheehan Newsletter. He's on Twitter at Joe underscore Sheehan, and you can also ask questions about the newsletter at Sheehan Newsletter on Facebook. Welcome, Joe. Welcome, Arakli. Thank you for coming in. Uh, Pleasure to be here. Um, Arakli, we're going to begin because this has been a kind of a crazy month for, for a lot of people around the world, a lot of people kind of reassessing what's going on here in the United States. But you have a different perspective on this coming from Georgia. Um, what do you see are the challenges facing Georgia in this kind of rapidly challenging and changing world, and particularly given the changes uh, inside Europe with Brexit and the changes in the United States with uh, Donald Trump winning election that was not expected? Well, um, first of all, thank you for inviting me to be part of this. Well, diff perspective from Georgia is a little bit different, of course, because we are now more thinking about how the new administration here uh, will uh, continue or change the policies that they have towards my region, which is Eastern Europe, uh, the region that is uh, aspiring to be part of uh, NATO and the Atlantic community, but uh, we're not yet. So we are in kind of gray area where the NATO cannot protect us, so we put a lot of emphasis on bilateral relationship with the uh, United States. And it has been a wonderful relationship for decades, bipartisan support that we all have uh, from the Republicans and Democrats. Of course, the uh, winning of uh, Trump was unexpected, but uh, this is where we are um, now thinking about how the policies will develop. And so we want to know more. Uh, we're listening. Uh, what statements are coming out from the president-elect's office uh, in general, uh, from my own experience with the United States, and I've been in working together with my colleagues here for 20 years now, I think when the dust will settle, uh, the policies will remain the same because it's in the best interest of the United States to have strong democratic countries like Georgia developing. Uh, it's in the best interest of the United States, uh, these countries not to be threatened and bullied by the Russian Federation, uh, which we've seen uh, for the past uh, 10 years. Uh, which is more aggressive. Uh, they are taking over the territories. It was the first time since the breakup of the Soviet Union they expanded the territories occupying Georgia, occupying Ukraine. So in that terms, of course, it's very complicated, and I, we also understand that nobody will go in war with Russia over Georgia. But we want to make sure that the policies and the relationship we have will make us stronger militarily, economically. So this is why it's a lot of interest now, even more so to United States elections rather than to Georgia elections that was held a month ago as well. I remember when I was in Georgia, uh, 
and over the summer at some point where the American ambassador said, this is the more time, more, first time more, the American ambassador to Georgia, who, by the way, is an enormous Chicago Cubs fan. <laughs> so, he's having a good month. And he's having a good yeah, month. he's a good guy. And, and he yeah, comes yeah, by, he's a good guy. guy. He comes by it honestly. He's like, you know, he's a, older than me, and he was born in Chicago, and, you know, like, this is not some jump on the bandwagon kind of guy. Huge Cubs fan. But in addition to wanting to have a long conversation in the summer with me about whether the Cubs were going to pick up Araldus Chapman or not, because, you know, I was from New York, and he maybe had some, some insight into that. And I also, I kind of wanted to go to the Giants. Um, he, he said, this is the first time I'm more worried about elections in the United States than elections <laughs> in Georgia. But, you know, if, if uh, Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio, a Republican like that, had been elected, this would be a very different discussion we'd be having, right? As a matter of fact, we might have been um, interpret the election very differently because I still would have been for Hillary uh, Clinton in that, in that scenario. And if Hillary Clinton had gotten elected, I think the people in Georgia would have said, this is business as usual. Yes. This is somebody who we know where she stands. You can't say that about Donald Trump. I mean, I was struck that two things from the news that struck me about this. First, John McCain and Lindsey Graham, who are probably the two most kind of prominent Republicans on foreign policy in the U.S. Senate today, are going on a trip that will include Georgia. Absolutely, in right, December. To show that, you know, we are still supporting Georgia. Now, I, I, even though these aren't my favorite politicians, although I actually think Graham has taken some good principal positions of this thing, you know, I, I think that's a good thing. Like, I, I'm glad that they're doing that. Oh, absolutely. But, but they wouldn't have to be doing that if it were Marco Rubio who were just elected, right? And similarly, while you were, you know, the, the last 20 minutes while I was working here, it comes across the Twitter, Paul Manafort is now was seen at Trump Tower, right? Uh-huh. So, so this is not typical, right? I mean, is that, has that sunk in in Georgia? Uh, first of all, uh, let me reflect on, I had a chance to talk and see McCain a few days ago in Halifax Security Conference, and he's always reassuring to the Eastern European countries and countries that are fighting for the freedom and democracy, and uh, he also mentioned that, he, well, when it's done now and Trump is in power and uh, the Republicans have the House and they have the Senate, um, I think uh, he also mentioned this openly that he doesn't think that the policies will change dramatically. Uh, now, um, on the other note, Trump also knows Georgia. He's been in Georgia like, I don't know, six, uh, seven years ago. Uh, they were trying to build the Trump Tower in one of the beautiful cities uh, in my country, in Batumi. So he's been there and he knows, uh, he, was, he has the awareness of uh, what we're worried about. and. Uh, I hope that his national security team and himself will pay attention now, although we know that every new president uh, had started, uh, wanted to start fresh start with Russian Federation. It's, it's logical. We understand that. But in trying to do that, they should be aware that the people of those countries who are around Russia, neighborhood countries, they are very scared and worried about continued Russia's resurgence. So this should be on their mind, and hopefully... The, the national security team will uh, keep him up to date on information what's happening there. Because what we are seeing now, obviously, is the new type of the uh, techniques that Russia uses. is a hybrid warfare. They're trying to manipulate. They're trying to influence with their propaganda, not only Eastern Europe, though. They're working hard in the Euro- heartland of the Europe. We're all here... More on domestic issues, I think, and, and less internationally, but certainly internationally as well, trying to figure out where the, the ground is between how, what Trump said to get elected and how he's uh-huh. actually going Absolutely. to govern. And I think it's interesting that you, you feel fairly reassured, having spoken to, to, to Senator McCain and, uh, and, and Graham, that you feel comfortable that things aren't going to change. And I think a lot of us here are saying, you know, what are we headed for here? Is it going to be the, 
somewhat monomaniacal candidate, or is he going to move towards the center and try to govern the entire country? And certainly we've seen some of the cabinet selections, some of the rumored cabinet selections are concerning, to say the least. Uh, I, I do think it's interesting that you know, coming from Georgia, you seem to have a little less concern. You seem a little more comfortable than certainly a lot of us here stateside are. Uh, well, I do agree with you that um, now we are more uh, kind of security conscious. And uh, we're looking all uh, at the elections and the results through that prism. And some of the nominees that we have uh, um, the, at, the, at the new administration, I know some of them. I've talked with them uh, a few times about uh, Georgia and what kind of threat uh, we are facing there. So yes, I do believe that uh, pre-election campaign, which I was part of just a month ago, unfortunately Georgia, we lost, the, we lost the elections and uh, believe me, it's no fun to lose the election. But then again, we also uh, uh, came to the understanding that we have to give the time to winners to establish the new government, to help them to uh, get their uh, stuff together. So I think this is what's happening here. There is, a, we, I feel, a tremendous shift in the rhetoric uh, from Trump, from uh, his uh, pre-election stuff, and also from the Democrats. And this is good. We want to see United I, States I, I, lead United I can't. Country. I can't leave that unchallenged, right? I mean, you see that on the foreign policy stuff, right? Clearly, if you're sitting in Tbilisi, Mitt Romney as Secretary of State. Yeah. Frankly, if you're sitting in Manhattan, I mean, Mitt Romney as a Secretary of State. It's not, again, I would rather be Hillary Clinton as President. Yeah, but it's not, not a bad news, right? It's a perfectly reasonable person. He's a smart guy. He's, he's a decent guy. He's a rational person. And, and he's very much in the mainstream of American foreign policy. And that is, of course, of great interest to Georgia. So if I'm sitting at Tbilisi, I can live with Mitt Romney. If I'm sitting in America, right, and I cannot live with Steve Bannon whispering in the President's ear. And this is, I think, something that, I mean, we have to be clear here. Steve Bannon is somebody who, if the Bush administration, George W. Bush, the most conservative administration in American history, if he'd been on a list for a cocktail party at the White House, the person who put him on the list would probably have lost their job. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of extremism we're talking about, right? But we don't know him there. I know, but I'm saying, but domestically, so yeah, does Steve Bannon just a name there, right? But here, that the, so, so the domestic things they're sending out, I mean, Donald Trump yesterday called a press conference to berate the media, right? Donald Trump ran on a platform of limiting the First Amendment. And before his presence already, so he called on an artist to apologize to the vice president. Never. That doesn't happen in American history. So, so there is this disconnect. And maybe the foreign policy, but I wouldn't be, I mean, you know, this is a difference of temperament also, right? I mean, you know, we can all, you can all live with, Mike, with Mitt Romney. Can you all live with Michael Flynn? Right? I mean, these are, you know, if you're sitting at the... By the way, uh, I want to mention that uh, I know Michael Flynn, <laughs> the general. Uh, and, uh, immediately ISIS barks. Yes. Yes. <laughs> And, uh, we have to be clear. ISIS is the dog because Iraqi <laughs> may have a future in politics that we don't want. Sorry. Yeah, so I know him, and uh, we had a very uh, good discussions a couple of years ago about, uh, again, national security and the threats that we face from terrorism, from resurging Russia. And uh, he came across to me as a very rational and solid guy on these issues. So then he left the military, so we haven't had a chance to talk, but I'm hearing a lot of things about him. But at the end of the day, I think that uh, the uh, institutions here are so strong, and the institutional memory is so strong, that that's why it's so great, American democracy, that they will curb any, so to say, deviations, huge deviations from the policies that they were pursuing for the decades. So I hope, we're hopeful. We, we see that as different. 
No, don't get me wrong that we don't see the difference because I've been here monitor. I mean, looking at the elections for, I don't know, four presidents at least. So uh, I know how different it is. But then again, uh, this is the will of American people. And uh, so we have to respect that and also to find ways how to make sure that the leadership here gets, gets the information they need to make a sound judgments about the things that concerns us in Eastern Europe. Well, I think that's one of the undercurrents of this election was a pulling back from being the global cop. And certainly a lot of that is because of the investments in the Middle East over the last 15 years. And this is separate from our obligations to our allies in Asia, our allies in Europe. But all the things are going to get muddled together. You might see this nation pull back. And there are a lot of people who legitimately would like to see us invest less in the protection of Eastern Europe or less in the protection of our Asian allies and more in the protection of Cleveland or Detroit or South Central. Uh, I don't know what it's like coming from, from Georgia. So my perspective is that of a guy who lives in Westchester. Uh, but I can appreciate that. I can understand where there would be this, hey, America first idea. If you're on the outside, as you are, and you're looking at a, a retrenchment perhaps, leaving aside the fact that we're doing this with people we wouldn't necessarily have chosen to make these decisions, how does that look as somebody who's, who, uh, I want to avoid using the word need, um, who welcomes the umbrella of the American military might, American diplomatic strength. Um, what is that like to, to kind of look and say that might be changing? And I guess my other question is, what is a future for Georgia absent, you know, the U.S. being such a strong player yeah. on the international stage? Well, of course, that's the last thing we want to see this uh, rolling back of America's strength and power and the presence in uh, the world because uh, we've been very close to United States security-wise, militarily, for the past 20 years. Uh, Pretty much since, a, the, since the fall of the Soviet Union. Absolutely. And uh, we've, we've been in Afghanistan, we've been in, uh, in Iraq with the U.S. soldiers. We are closest ally, non-member ally to the partner to the NATO. And it's all because of U.S. investing in Georgian military. I remember when I was a head of the counter-terrorists in Georgia in 2002-3-4, the trade and equip program that we started with Georgian militaries was essential to have successful counter-terrorist operations. We were then backed up by the well-trained Georgian militaries. It's because U.S. invested. And Georgia is now democracy, although with all the shortcomings that we can discuss here, but, I mean, we know that democracy cannot be built overnight. But because of that presence, because of that policies uh, that we were seeing from the United States, uh, and, of course, uh, if this is going to change, this is going to change also our thinking about how we well can protect our country. Uh, Don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm not anti-Russian, but I'm defending my country, my country's interests are first, so I see the threat. I'm a believer in the future of Russia-Georgian relationship, Russia-US relationship, but I think it will only come if they're going to see that Georgia, other neighbors, they're choosing on themselves where they want to be, and the West strongly protects them and protects their interests. So this is, again, uh, my, my thinking is that the US withdrawal or rolling back will have tremendously damaging effect on the prosperity and the democracy in my region. Because Georgia is a role model now. We can discuss a lot of things about Georgia where we need to make a progress, but 
It's a, we had a democratic elections with all the shortcomings, but it's a peaceful change of power for second time now. Uh, there was no change of power this time. No, no, but it was this a free and fair free, election. Free, 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 yeah. I, yeah, that's true. So this is why I think that the support that the U.S. was lending also was exemplary for Europeans. If U.S. will not be there, then there's a lot of sentiments in Europe as well to, wait a second, we don't need any expansions, we don't need any conf more conflicts with Russia, so let's forget about the Eastern Europe for, I mean, those countries who are outside the EU and NATO for a while. So this is why it's going to have a tremendously negative effect. So that's why we hope that um, with uh, our interactions with the new administration, with the, other, with the uh, Senate and the House, we will make sure that they know what we need. And we also are mindful that there are some sentiments here, and rightly so, they want to take care of the social depression here and they take care of the state. So we understand this. But it can't be dealt uh, in, the, in both in a parallel. So this is why U.S. is a global power. Uh, I don't like to call them the uh, place of the world. Uh, but uh, then again, it's the most powerful country, democratic country. It's not the uh, old version of the empires that were going and absorbing the local culture. They are enriching when they're coming in the local culture. So I think the uh, uh, U.S. Uh, has this faith to be uh, the leader. So I hope the new leader would uphold to this. I mean, if I could just maybe tie some of this together, because I wanted to ask you a baseball question in a second. But it, it does... I'm good. No, but... I, <laughs> um, your, your point is, is a very important one. I mean, Donald Trump, you know, I didn't vote for him. You may not know that. Um, but I didn't vote for him. And, and there are many, many reasons. But not everything he said is 100% wrong. And he did plug, it, plug into an appetite in the American electorate. And I don't like to use the, American, the phrase America first because when my father heard that on the radio in the 1940s from Charles, yeah. it had a different meaning, you know. Um, but... This notion of what are we doing all over the world when we have these problems at home, that resonates across the political spectrum. It resonated with the Bernie Sanders voters. And in fact, if Bernie Sanders had educated himself on foreign policy and been able to make that argument more persuasively, he might have won the primary, right? Hillary Clinton is very much a, a in the mainstream, she is the mainstream American political foreign policy, foreign policy, and she's an interventionist. And she didn't sell those ideas well, right? I mean, Iraq in the last 120 seconds sold those ideas better, better than, than Hillary I've in the last 100, 120 days, yeah. right? And, and what you're talking about, I mean, yes, the, and, and the Georgian military has a close relationship with the uh, American military. And we should stress that's not a one-way relationship, right? I mean, if you made that clear enough, that's a two-way relationship. Absolutely. Georgian troops have, Georgia one of the few countries, I mean, Iraq is one of the few defense ministers that has sent Georgian flesh and blood to fight, to fight alongside Absolutely. our troops. But it's not just military, right? A lot of this stuff is cheap and easy, right? It's bringing people like Iraqi over to see what happens here. It's NGO programs that cost nothing, right? It's our soft power, which we're doing anyway, right? We're not going to stop, you know, having our political system. We may stop having our political system, but not for that reason. So, but that argument wasn't made, and that's what leaves the opening for Donald Trump. And the question is, you know, when, when Barack Obama got elected, I think he learned very early there's no bandwidth in, in foreign policy. You have to... The question is, can Trump, will Trump learn the same lesson, or will he try to break with that? And that's the wild card. And, and what we haven't talked about is the Putin relationship. So I want to change. I want to have a little baseball talk. Um, what do you think of the 26-man roster? 
Uh, I advocate a typically 25-man on a roster, uh, a baseball roster. It's okay. the number of guys you get to play with. And they're considering changing the rule to allow an extra player uh, to be active every day. Uh, right now in baseball, there are a lot of pitchers being used and not as many position players. What I've advocated for is a cap on the number of pitchers that would be available for any given game. So if you want to add a, posi- add a roster spot, that's great, but you have to mandate that it's for a position player. The pacing of the game, the strategies of the game are better when there are fewer pitchers used and more players used. That's the best way I can explain it. Um, and if they're going to add a roster spot, that's fine, but I'd like to see it come with a cap on the number of pitchers used. I, if we're just going to see 12-man pitching staffs become 13-man pitching staffs, or 14, I mean, right. it, that doesn't do the game any good. I agree. I, mean, I think it's a less fun game to watch when no one on the bench can hit. I mean, right. in plain English, when you just have backup catcher, backup infielder, it's, mm-hmm. it's, less, it's less fun. But, but it also seems like, don't, I mean, isn't this just make, instead of just making the managers figure out that maybe you go into a postseason series, especially a short one with 11 pitchers, or the one-game playing game, you know, is, isn't, it just makes it easier for them, right? I mean, wouldn't it, wouldn't, actually, isn't that something they should figure out on their own? Or do you think they're not going to figure that out on their own because... Well, this isn't a tactical question. This is a labor relations question. Well, creating thirty additional jobs, and, right? You know, the, the trade-off will be a, a September roster thing. I mean, this is really not happening in the realm of that we're discussing it now: right. tactics and strategy. This is happening in the realm of collective bargaining, which is we're going to add. I can do math: four percent more jobs, roughly, and right. you're going to not worry about service time. Mostly at the major league minimum, right? Because these are the last almost man on the yeah. team. But it's still, I mean, it's, 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 thir- it's 30 guys picking up service time over the course right. of a year. It's 30 guys getting vested in the pension, getting vested in the, in the health care. It's a significant bump if you're, if you're uh, the player association. Sure, it's actually also something, the rare thing, that's been done for, in recent years, for the lower end of the scale. Right. Um, they've given away a lot, of, a lot of rights, but not just minor league players. That's the big topic. But uh, players on the lower end of the pay scale, players on the lower end, lower end of the service time scale. This is giving something back to that group. So that, that's, I think that's a good, that's a good way to look at it. But, but on the, to me what, what it speaks to, and this is, a, this is a big picture thing, where baseball, you know, around 20, kind of in, as, dovetailing with the sabermetric revolution, right? There is this notion that winning baseball is, for many fans, boring baseball, right? I mean, yeah. so, so just to, you know, for many years, there was this notion of hitters were supposed to put the ball in play. Once the hitter hits the ball, interesting things happen if you're a fan. Someone can field it, someone cannot field it. Someone can get to base safely, someone can get out, right? From a strategic angle, it's more important. Batters who strike out more, it's okay as long as when they hit it, they, they do something good, right? So the game had this gradual movement to more strikeouts, more walks, more home runs, less balls in play, which for many fans, particularly older fans, just wasn't as interesting. But it was better. Right, it was actually that's a better winning strategy. It's more efficient. It's more efficient. Whether it's right. better is a qualitative. I mean, more efficient. In terms of certainly, more, it's certainly more right. efficient. We've learned that strikeout strikeouts are the best kind of you know no, no contact. So pitchers are trying to strike everybody out. We're using fewer pitchers. I'm sorry, more pitchers, but putting less on their arms so that they can strike out more batters. And hitters have said, well, just slapping the ball is not doing anybody any good. Let's try to hit it as hard as possible. If we miss, we miss. Um, and it is. It is a far less entertaining game than the one I grew up with. Certainly. And uh, you know, I'm, we're about the same age, 43 and 45. Um, and it's, it's, it's a different game, and it's hard to explain. I think there are a lot of baseball fans who've grown up with this and just don't understand what, how it used to be different, how it used to be, and I'll use the word now, better. Um, but I do think some of the complaints you see about baseball time of game and how slow right. it is directly are caused by this problem, the lack of balls in play. Right, because to – I mean, I, 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 if you watch an old baseball game, I mean, we're recording this – 
the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. Well, actually, we'll, this will be up right after Thanksgiving. But on Thanksgiving, I'm making. A, I actually invited you, but you couldn't make it. But I'm inviting. I'm making a turkey, mm-hmm. and and it, you know I can't stand football. I'm not supposed to say that, but I can't. Stand so I will YouTube an old baseball game <laughs> from like the it. '70s. Like I'll just find one on YouTube and I'll watch it while I'm you know basting the turkey. And it's you know it's. I mean I'm thinking about the '73 World Series. For some reason I might watch one of those games. And if you watch, everyone run literally runs up to the plate and swings at one of the first two pitches, right? Because you know. The, because striking out was so stigmatized back then. You really didn't get promoted to the next level if you did. But, and, and we also, we saw, you know, baseball is always cyclical, right? So the first wave of sabermetrics didn't know what to do about defense. So defense became overlooked. And now the second wave, of course, realized defense actually has some value. And, you know, we're, we're seeing more investment in better fielders and all of that, which is, I mean, if you can't enjoy, I don't know, and Anderson Simmons or Brandon Crawford, to me, you can't really enjoy baseball. Like Those are fun guys to watch. And one of baseball's problems is those guys don't have enough to do yeah, right The ball now. doesn't get hit to them enough. Exactly. Right. That's where right. the strikeouts come into play. You also mentioned that 1973 game you're, you're going to watch. I'm not sure which one. You might, you might see two pitches thrown at the speed that you... Yes. We, we watched even a guy like, uh, oh, I'm just picking a World Series pitcher, Kyle Hendricks throw. Right. Right. Who wasn't even the fastest guy. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. It's, it's, it was a different game then, in part because the pitchers couldn't throw as hard, and they didn't throw as hard, and everything was And different. also, you'll see a 7 8 9 in a lineup. Now, that World Series would play without a DH, because at that time there's no DH, you know, no matter what. That was the first year of the DH, actually. Nobody's seen the World Series. The World Series was, right. Yeah. So, so it's, you'll, you'll see the 7 8 9 guys who aren't really major league hitters. Oh, they're nothing. Right. So, so this is why you go a complete game, because you really had to, you get to the, you take a break, break every third inning, essentially. Half the, half the league was shortstops and center fielders that, you know, couldn't hit at all. They were 140 pounds. Right, there's Ted Simmons and Johnny Bench, and maybe. This is the, and this is within our lifetime. This sport that, 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 that I love and has, has changed so much. And it's, I don't know that. I mean, I think football has gone similar. I think basketball, the U.S. space sports have evolved dramatically. And I feel like soccer is a game that just, just a, you know, pick the global sport. I feel like I could watch a soccer game from 1958 and it would look a lot like it does today in a way that baseball doesn't. I don't know if that's... I don't know if a, so, if a, if a, if a soccer expert, I don't know, Rockley, if you're a soccer yeah. expert, if you, if you see that same evolution in the games that you love growing up. Well, uh, let me start with the baseball. Uh, it, it was kind of interesting how we were introduced to baseball in Georgia. I mean, it was also part of the U.S. public diplomacy tool. In the mid to late 80s, uh, there was this yeah, there was this exchange of the experience on baseball. I remember my friend from the streets actually. He went uh, once and he loved it. So then it was also window to west. I mean, to United States. They were traveling to United States. By the way, they were traveling also to Cuba. I was going to ask about that. And they were bringing up so many stories about what we what they saw there and how interesting it was. So it was kind of really American thing. And uh, it was the, one of the first experiences that we culturally had uh, to, with the United States. And it's also developed uh, a lot. I think the soccer, though, we call it football. It's real football. Uh, so, uh, Lincoln would agree. We yeah. call it terrorist ball. <laughs> <laughs> so, they don't play uh, baseball in terrorist games. It changed a lot as well. I mean, the face and the speed of the game and the physical ability of the now players to reach such a, a high amount of actually movement uh, on the field is very different than 80s and, uh, uh, and 70s. So, yes, I think physically it's gone more demanding for the players to play the soccer as well. But here, I, I've been on four or five games. Uh, baseball. Baseball games, yeah. And um, um, first of all, what, what was the first impression? It's very slow. 
But when you get the explanation and how it played, then you're really hooked on it. So I think um, Georgia uh, and you sh also took, you should continue spreading this uh, uh, out in the countries that they don't have this as a national game. Rugby is also picking up a lot. We are playing a good rugby. Georgia's the Georgia. serious rugby uh, yeah, country. Yeah, and, so, and it's also getting more and more international now. So I think we're going to see baseball, rugby, soccer, of course, uh, basketball. There are the mainstream games now that uh, we can use also to really get our cultures together, again, our people interact more. And it can be also used as a confidence-building tool in the areas where we have conflicts. For example, with Abkhaz and Osirians, and I mean in Moldova, these are the things, economy of course, trade, but also the sports that are apolitical, and you can really use this to get people together, let them play, let them get interact, and the generations will then really understand more each other. So I think uh, to turn it into also international, uh, actually, direction, this is also the tool that the U.S. can use in the future as well to expand and uh, make more understanding of American culture. It's funny you mentioned using it as a, a tool to bridge cultures. I mean, I'm from, uh, we're on the Upper West Side now, and I don't know how much of the city is explored. Up the, the northern tip of Manhattan is Inwood, the last neighborhood in Manhattan. That's where I'm from. And the, the, the kind of the center activity back when I was growing up was the basketball courts up in Inwood Park. Mm -hmm. And it didn't matter. I mean, it was, the neighborhood was, at the time, about half Irish, half Dominican, you had other Latin cultures, you had some, uh, some African-American, but it was pretty much half and half. It didn't matter. In, in, in Little League, playing baseball, it didn't matter. Like, all, that's, all that mattered was could you play, the courts. All that mattered was could you play. And it, it mm -hmm. was on a, a certainly much smaller level than you're talking about. Sports are where young men and now young women more so come together, yeah. and it doesn't yeah, matter awesome. where you're from. It's just you're, you're playing ball, yeah. and you play. And, sorry, go ahead. There's a one funny story about that. My son plays on a team. My younger one, he actually he had, he had an arm issue, so I, he stopped in the fall. But the fall, they're very ethnically mixed. It was about a third Dominican baseball. You know, Dominicans mm -hmm. love big baseball players. About a third Irish, two-thirds Irish or Italian, and, and one uh, Jewish. And um, so there's polarized politically, <laughs> right? I mean, at one point, and he was, and he, and and but but I remember one game we had where <laughs> where. He had pitched, it was like a tournament, he had pitched in the first game. He doesn't play all that much when he's not pitching. He was sitting on the bench, and his tie game in the bottom of an extra inning, and our team was, his team was up, and one of the kids gets on base, like the catcher gets a, a single, and so the coach sends my son into a pinch run. He then gets the second on either a stolen base or a wild pitch, and one of the big Dominican kids is up, and there's two outs, right? So all this Dominican kid has to do is get a hit, and we're going to win the game. So... So I'm, and I'm watching with one of these Dominican dads who is just nuts about, he's a really great guy, but nuts about baseball, right? I mean, I said, but, and nuts about baseball. And, and I believe he worked in like a Jewish organization of some kind. And so I'm yelling to, to Ruben, who's on second base, and you know, kids on second base, they can take a little too many risks and get picked off and cost their team the game. So I yell at him, Ruben, no Mishigash on the bases. <laughs> and, and then the Dominican dude looks at me and says, that means, what does that mean, like crazy or something? I said, yeah. He says, Ruben, no Michigash on the bases! <laughs> and then the, the first Dominican ever to use that word. I'm uh, not in New York. And then, uh, and then the Dominican, the, the, the catcher, who was also Dominican, who was up, like bounces the signal up the middle, and, you know, that was the game. Anyway, we were... Yeah. But, so can I throw in the, maybe a little bit ignorant question, but is it true, is, can we say that the uh, baseball and... Uh, Cricket comes from the same origin or not? I, uh, yeah, baseball comes from cricket. Uh, yeah, there was so. this whole origin myth created in the early 
say either late eight, late nineteenth or early twentieth century like about how baseball was invented by an old general uh, in central New York. But no, baseball evolved from any number of stick and ball sports. Uh, rounders in England, cricket and and. Is cricket England, or does cricket actually emanate from... from well, cricket England? is English, but cricket it's spread to... And they, they import like it. It's hugely popular, like India, India Pakistan. It, yeah, it, it, baseball is evolved from all the stick and ball sports, right. and uh, our, our attempts to pretend that it wasn't were always amusing. But no, I think it's it's embraced now that uh, baseball is an, an evolved sport, and, not and an invented one. Two episodes of this, I did a, a podcast, two episodes before, from West Point, because I was there for a conference, and I had a great, really sharp professor who played in the West Point baseball team, really smart guy talking about counterterrorism strategy, but also like big baseball guy, and then a player who was really playing Division One at West Point. It's not just any, con- it's not just any Division One school. It's different because he's in the military. He's going to go, mm-hmm. you know, but he's also studying some very interesting things. The ball field there is called the Adver Double Day ball field, who is the kind of apocryphal guy who didn't really invent baseball. Yeah, and we're not going to move the Hall of Fame from Cooperstown, which is up on Lake... Something. Wacha up in, you know, James It's beautiful. The other one is nice. It's, I got no problem with Cooperstown. <laughs> um, but it's, everything kind of stems from that myth. But no, it's, it's an evolved sport. I think the only, the wholly invented, uh, basketball was wholly invented here. Yes. That's the one sport that we can claim. Right. right. Springfield, Massachusetts. Right. Yeah. Um, by the way, there's a great article in the New Yorker from about 20 or 30 years ago about the Soviet baseball team in the very last years of the Soviet Union coming to the United States yeah. to play like, you know, to play, like, colleges and, and to learn about the game and how, you know, how different it was for them. I bet Georgia was part of it. A lot of Georgians were overrepresented in the Soviet yeah. baseball. Yeah. I wanted to actually ask, because I had just seen, I, I was obviously looking into for this, uh, uh, I should mention, by the way, the first time I talked to Lincoln, we were working on the book, he referenced Georgia a half dozen times before I figured out that he was talking about the state. And I'm like, why is he talking about Georgia? Oh, I get it now. So, yeah, uh, buy my newsletter. Georgia won. It should be noted. Georgia won it. They were in the European Baseball Championships. They went one and three. trying, And they didn't qualify for the main tournament. But there's a, there's a pool C, I guess, that's trying to basically play their way into the main tournament. So this isn't, you know, some kids on a, on a, on a back diamond. I mean, there's a national team, and it's growing. And yeah. eventually, hopefully, they'll qualify for the World Baseball Classic. You know, the next one of those is coming up. And you know, as that expands, it's 16 teams now. I'd like to think they're right. going to expand it in the future. Um, there's the World Cup of Baseball. There are so many. I, I feel like the Olympic sports have taught us this. If you have an international stage, and if you have an ability for a, a nation to make it's its true. mark within a game, that's something that will grow the Stimulates game domestically. Yeah, and, and if you're interested in baseball in Georgia, I have a chapter which begins about with some in, in the book, but will Big League Baseball survive about baseball in Georgia? Because there's a man in Georgia named Gio Kemokliza, who I interviewed for the book, who I want to have on the podcast, but i got to get my next trip to Georgia, who has really been devoted to building baseball in Georgia. I mean, everything to, you know, like mowing the lawn on the field so there can be base paths. Like I may that. have read about him, if, although I have to tell you that the pronunciation right. is not what that I level of <laughs> That level of devotion. And, and the problem he has is that, you know, the, the team... They're good. Like they play the Marines on the Fourth of July. And yes, they usually true. win, and they true. usually the Georgia National Team. This is not true. great for the Marines, but and the problem is they hit the baseballs into the forest, <laughs> and they can't find them. <laughs> like they're like kids, so they run out of baseball. So when I go, I always try to bring gear, some you know brand new baseballs, and he's very happy because you know you can't buy yeah. them at the sporting goods store. Or, you know, no, probably not many. Yeah, I think we have to support that more, uh, and. Um, I mean, in Georgia, um, the sports and federations are mainly still supported by the state. 
uh, we need to turn it into the more business supported private sports, investment. private investment, and municipalities because it's centralized now. So, uh, baseball should, I believe, baseball should be one of those sports that we have to really support and develop. And as you rightly mentioned, when you have an international stage, uh, the countries are more stimulated yep. and well, more I was, I was motivated to do this. I was recently out in the Bay Area, and the, there was a Georgian basketball player who plays for the almost world champion Golden State Warriors, Zaza Pachulia. Oh, he's a great guy. And yeah. I was in, and, and a colleague of yours, and you can guess who, was, and I were in the sporting goods store, no, like the store, he's a huge basketball fan, uh, Teto. And, uh-huh. and, and trying to buy Zaza Pachulia stuff for him and his, and his family. But when Pachulia was, a couple of years ago, when he was, I don't know how the NBA works particularly, but there was a vote to put him on the All-Star team, like for the last spot, yeah, we... and, on, online, and all over Facebook, and Georgian Facebook and Twitter, because I have a lot of social media contacts in Georgia. It was just, you know, vote Pachulia, vote Pachulia. And if you got one big leaguer from, you know, Georgia, any country like any that. Any small would, country. And, to, and Georgia is small. So Georgia in a, in a European baseball tournament, it's, it's, you know, the numbers don't break their way necessarily. It's a tough, uh, you know. Well, it, it's it's a generational project. Right. It's not something that's going to happen a year over year, but there are opportunities now. Like I said, I between the, the World Cup and the WBC and the Euro Baseball Championships, there are opportunities to get better and to grow. And it takes, you have that one breakthrough. I remember the first WBC. I was in Phoenix for it. The big game was U.S. versus Mexico, which in the Southwest, you can imagine, it was at Chase Field, which was the big, it's where the Arizona Diamondbacks play, right. 60,000 seats. That's John McCain's team, by the way. John McCain's team. Yeah, team. Um, so the, and that was your basic event. But then later that night, also in Phoenix, this is at Scottsdale Stadium, South Africa versus Canada. And the level of baseball, and Canada's got major league baseball players, they're a good team, and South Africa doesn't. And it was eight innings into the game, and South Africa had a 7-6 lead. And this would have been, I kid you not, one of the great upsets in sporting history. And we are talking about South Africa, just they just ran out of pitchers. They were running out of, they, you know, it's a small, hmm. I mean, they, they don't have a developed baseball program. I would, uh, the pitcher who pitched the ninth inning for them, I would say he would struggle to make a good U.S. high school team. But he was on there trying to protect a one-run lead. And there were South Africans in the stands. But a lot of it was us neutrals just there to have a good time and watch a baseball game. And this was a small stadium. But I remember just the moment of thinking, we're going to see this country that got invited, that probably didn't expect to be competitive much less. I think they lost their next game to the U.S. 15 nothing in five That was That was the game with the U.S. where the U.S. had lost one game in pool play. And they had to win. And they had to win. And they threw Roger Clemens against South Africa. South Africa, which is a slight... It's uh, not fair. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, people will get behind that, not just in Georgia... But the story of a small country trying to do something that it hasn't done. We love underdog, sto- underdog stories, here, stories here. We love them domestically. We, we love them internationally. And I think that's, I mean, it, was it, um, who was it who did work at the World Cup or the Euros recently? Iceland. Wasn't it Iceland? Came out of nowhere to like go to the oh, yeah, quarterfinals of the Euro. And everybody loved right. that. Especially for a country like Georgia that has, I mean, Georgia... It, has such tremendous soft power and soft power potential anyway because of the, you know, the the, the food, the culture, the wine, the fashion, the design. No, these are back that, up. I don't know any of this. No, but these are things that Georgia is, but you can talk about that. I mean, let me say this. When, so, so this is a, a story, I think I've told this on this podcast, so I'll tell it again. I don't know if I've told you this. In 2002, I was moving to Georgia, right, for a couple of years. And I had, and, and you know, it was going away. And I went to go see a friend of my... My grandparents had both passed away by then, but I went to go see my grandparents' oldest friend, this woman in her 90s. And, and to, to, basically, I knew I wasn't going to see her again. I'd known her my whole life. And I said to her, you know, I'm going to Georgia. And she said, oh, Shabernaz is the president there, which is you know, 
And then she talked about how she'd met him. Um, and then she said, you know, I was in Georgia once, which is weird. And I said, really, when? And she said, 1962. So this is the heart of the Cold War. And I said, and I asked her what she was doing, and she told me. And I said, so what did you think of it? And she said, you know, we went all over the Soviet Union. We were in Ukraine. We were in what was in Belarus. We were in Moscow. And we got to Georgia, and we felt like we were alive again. <laughs> and that's what you hear, right? And, yeah. and so, so I mean, you can explain more, but basically, Georgia is a cradle of wine globally. Yeah. It's also got by far the best food in the region. And, it's, and if you think of the Soviet Union as, this is a very bad analogy, if you think of the Soviet Union as America, right, during those days, Petersburg was New York, you know, where you went to get rich. Moscow was the capital, where Washington, where the power was. San Francisco. Georgia was the Bay Area, where you went yeah. to be cool and to eat well. Yeah. Well, um, you're invited, first of all. Thank you. Uh, anytime, uh, we're going to have you, uh, t- and you're going to love everybody that comes to Georgia falls in love, right? And uh, yes, it's a creative, I mean, few things that you can say that it's an ancient culture. Uh, we've been around for three millenniums. We've been uh, one of the oldest Christian cultures uh, in the world. Very tolerant people, very tolerant. There was never an anti-Semitic movement ever throughout this whole uh, millenniums, I would say. Uh, and uh, the guest uh, that comes to our house and to our country is number one. So there are a lot of literature and poets, poems about this as well in our uh, culture. So we love guests. We love to treat them well, and we have excellent food. We have uh, excellent wine. Yes, uh, UNESCO just actually uh, registered uh, the uh, special way of winemaking 6,000 years ago from Georgia. It's now Georgia know-how. So, uh, yes, it's a cradle of winemaking. Uh, But most importantly, I think the people uh, that makes Georgia, I mean, really attractive, that we're very open-minded, open-hearted. And um, definitely that makes Georgia attractive for tourism, and this is why I feel that we have a very big potential uh, for uh, tourism. We have big potential to be also from our progress on democratic side to be the role model for other regional countries to follow in my area. And this again, pivoting back what we were talking uh, just a few minutes ago about this is why it's important to support countries like Georgia, because this uh, can spread. And this can make the area that uh, is Caucasus and Central Asia better for everybody. And um, I think the sports there can play a key role as well. As I mentioned to you, this is apolitical. And we have so many conflicts, in, unfortunately, in that region. We have Nagorno-Karabakh, we have Russia's occupation of Georgia, we have occupation of Russia's by, uh, to uh, uh, yeah, Ukraine. So I think sport will really make people interact and think other ways. Uh, because, for example, I'm going to give you my example. He knows that that in early 90s when we had the first war with Russia over Abkhazia, uh, I went there with my father. I was a kid, I was volunteering, he was working uh, in the government. And uh, to make long story short, he, was, he and others were captured when the city fall and he was executed. Uh, and then, 10 years from there, I was appointed as a negotiator with them. And, of course, I said at the beginning that it's, it's not going to work. But then, when we met, and I understood that these people, they also suffered. They also lost fathers, sons, daughters. So, we're all, both sides are victims of what happened. So, then we realized that what can we do that our kids in the future will not be in the same shoes. So, then we started talking about trade, then we started talking about exchange, uh, cultural exchange, sports, and um, uh, it will material down the road that this is the only way we can 
start making progress on building the confidence. And this is why I think Georgia is potentially one of the greatest destinations. And uh, people like Lincoln, who's been there for so many times, supported us in different ways, uh, and others here in the United States are very key uh, to introducing what Georgia is to, to Americans, to, to those people who still think that Georgia is only Atlanta. Any chance to go to Georgia that doesn't involve going through that airport? <laughs> I'm going to take. Well, now I, think I go, though. we got to play catch. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, so maybe that's a good segue. Rockley, looking at these conflicts that you've mentioned, right, looking at a sea change, potentially or potentially not, in, in our politics here, and the you know, reality that our friend in Moscow isn't going away, right, um, at least any time it, it seems unlikely. Mm-hmm. How do we get from here to a stable and functional Eurasia region? Is that possible? Well, my thinking... That's a small question. I know. Yeah. Take 30 seconds. No, no, know. my thinking but, is that we need to prepare ourselves for post, post-Putin period. It will come. Yes, it will Eventually, it's biology. Yes. Uh, Actually, we, speaking, it's very likely. We have, we, have, we have to prepare for this. And how are we going to prepare for this? Georgia cannot solve this problem, as Ukraine as well, by the way, uh, militarily. It's no military solution to this. So only way to be prepared uh, for the breakthrough in the negotiations is to get stronger economically, institution-wise, get as close as we can with these circumstances to standards of European and Euro-Atlantic, uh, develop ourselves, and then when window of opportunity will open, then we'll start negotiating. And this is why we need to start this kind of relationship interactions, people to people with Abkhaz, with Ossetians, uh, and this will help to s- set a stage. Now, here, with new uh, administration, it can go both ways, right? I mean, you start negotiating with Russia as a leader of the free world, you see potential, you pursue. If you don't see potential and you're wasting your time, then you're going to do otherwise. So I don't think that Trump is a guy that would like to be pushed around. I don't see that. So when he will see, if he will see, that the Russian side is not sincere in negotiating, it's not negotiating in good faith, I think he will not get along with this. I think he will end the fruitless talks and he will resort to different techniques in diplomacy. So I'm, I'm not scared as some of in Europe or that America. Got, on America yeah. that, no, on that Russia right. foreign, that he's going to sacrifice or trade in the countries or the interests of Russia, of the United States just to get on good foot with uh, Russians. I don't think so. Uh, I think that uh, every president has previously they tried to improve relationship. If it improves, it's good. It's good for Georgia, it's good for allies, right? If, but not giving in the interest of the United States and the allies and the friends and partners. Do you see this? I mean, that's, I think that's the, you know, you identify Georgia accurately as a kind of a model in the region. And today, we've been saying that for a while, today in 2016, that's pretty clear, right? I mean, this, this election, again, it's not perfect. It's, you know, they had two good elections in a row. Actually, if you count the ones in between, more than two. Um, you know, the economic indicators, Georgia still has a lot of economic problems, but the curve is clearly in the right direction, right? Um, but the region more broadly, I mean, I wouldn't say the same thing about Azerbaijan's trajectory over the last five years, you know, or Armenia's, or Central Asia. So, so is, and if you're, even if, even if we take the particular uh, challenges around Donald Trump out of the picture, just a, a, a typical American president, you on the one hand, you have this contentious relationship with Putin, but you're also kind of 
there's it's there's Putinism that exists really now without Putin, right? In other countries, and I think we had a case of that in Georgia until 2012. I think we are there are there's a fear that we will have a case of that here in the United States. Um, clearly, we do have that. I mean, countries like in Central Asia, Azerbaijan are, if not modeling themselves, getting direct assistance from, you know, Russia. So that mm-hmm. seems to make this more, not less, difficult. Yeah, that's why I mentioned it's a long-term thing, uh, and uh, we need to prepare and think in long-term ways. Uh, meanwhile, I don't think that things will get better soon. I mean, we're seeing what's happening in the Middle East, and. Um, even though there might be some military success to take over the Mosul or others, uh, it will migrate to different unstable countries around. So we're going to see the terrorism going up uh, and more spending on this from the leaders and from ourselves, taking, unfortunately, more lives. Uh, we have to adapt. I mean, that's the way it is. And I'm not seeing that it's going to go away in coming, I don't know, decades. Uh, but, of course, uh, what you're talking about is also some nationalistic sentiments growing even in Central Europe and elsewhere, and populism is growing and taking uh, advantage. So I think this is a kind of cycles, and uh, I'm pretty sure that the education is key here. Education is key, and this is why I think Georgia and uh, I mean the whole world should spend more educating uh, young generation about uh, what are the threats, just giving them the uh, chances to learn. Uh, there are so many regions they don't have internet connection. They cannot study on their own because the educational system is broken. Not far from here, actually. Yeah. So uh, that's, the, that's the ways uh, we can uh, help uh, develop the new generations. One of the problems we have now is that the problems of the Middle East, the questions of, of, of international terrorism, are sucking up so much of the air, the resources, the manpower, the thought, that it doesn't allow us to perhaps put effort, and I'm just talking, I mentioned earlier the domestic issues, but even internationally, we don't spend enough time thinking about how to develop the Caucasus, because we're putting all of our effort in trying to keep people killing each other in North Africa, and I, I don't know, I don't know how that gets fixed, and when I think about, you know, the future and kind of some of these issues, I get fairly depressed about, well, depressed isn't the word, um, pessimistic. And if you want to get more... I've been called nihilistic at times, if I'm saying that word right. Um, it's more... And in part, it's this because I don't know how we fix that so that we can move on to solving some of these other problems and help and helping in areas where I think our work can do more good. If you have these democratic or democratic-leaning states throughout the world, Georgia being one of them, how do we support? The, how do we put our efforts into that when we're trying to we're spending all of our time and all of our money and all of our manpower just trying to keep people alive and keep these people from killing other people? It's I don't, I don't mean to sound like a flower child. I don't mean like that. I, I'm thinking about it from a resource standpoint. Though. And how do, we, how do we not just get everybody here or globally to say, well, let's fix this problem and ignore everything else when there's a greater chance for success by investing in Georgia, even if it won't have necessarily the same impact on the world stage. Also cheaper to invest in Georgia, yeah. by yes. the way. But, but also just because, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not the most optimistic guy in the world either, but it is worth noting that we've just come out of a presidential election, regardless of who won on November 8th, where we had three debates, you know, three debates, presidential debates, where the climate change wasn't Didn't mentioned. come up once. Climate change. This is the major foreign policy challenge. This is the major challenge. It's a problem for Georgia. It's a problem for the United States. It's a problem for, for the global does, economy. How, do, how for does all the nobody ask that question? Because nobody has an answer to it. Because nobody has an answer. Those to are the questions we need to have answered. Right, exactly. But, but there's no incentive. Nobody really wants to discuss it. You know, our... 
our bilateral relationship with China, and, and, and you look, Georgia has crafted, I think, a very important bilateral relationship with China. It's not something that, that gets talked about much, but it has been a very smart strategic hedge by the Georgian government. They have built economic ties with China because they want other bulwarks against Moscow, right? And China is, is much more powerful than, 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 yes. than, than Russia, right? But our relationship, I mean, it's not just getting a currency war with China. That's a good recipe for global recession. I mean, that won't solve any problems. Nonetheless, our relationship with China is complicated. We didn't talk about that either. You know, um, there's a lot that goes unaddressed. We're not good at complicated issues, or simple ones. Yeah, I want to go back what Joe was just saying. How are we going to address this? I mean, it's complicated, of course, but that's where I'm a sports need, writer. Right? Yeah. That's where you need the allies. That's where we need the strong alliance between Europe and the uh, United States. That's why we need NATO. That's why we need European Union and United States to be on the same page because you cannot lift all this burden on your own. It's impossible. So this is why we hope that uh, they just they had the ministerial in uh, NATO uh, a few weeks ago, uh, and they're coming up with a strategy how to reinforce Eastern Europe in line of the threats, how to invest more. U.S. rightly so is demanding that the other countries uh, share the uh, financial burden of uh, NATO and uh, have more than 2% of their GDP allocated to this. So this is the way to jointly support the democracies, jointly protect the interests, uh, because uh, I don't think that any one country, even the superpower like the United States, can do this alone. No. So this is why alliances matter. It, and it feels, certainly on the domestic side, it does feel like we have this disproportionate responsibility. But at the same time, one of the most terrifying things we heard during the run-up to the election was this idea that we would turn our backs on NATO allies. Yeah. and. It, it doesn't work. It but doesn't it work if election. you don't have that. And that alliance has been one of the most successful in human history. Absolutely. In 1947, if I have this right? Yes. I mean, yeah, more or less. I, it's, it's worked. And the idea that we would ever question that is one of the more horrifying things that we heard over the last six months. More prosperous countries in there, and there was not a single attack on the ally. Uh, since... On this well, one, yeah. and, and, and they rushed to our defense. That's right. They've only had one, you know. And and, and, and I, I would note with regards to NATO. I mean, you know, Rockley is one of the leading people in a one of the, who's one of the most active people in his country and one of the most important NATO aspirant countries, right? So this is something that is very much not news to you, but it is worth stating. When Russia invaded Crimea and then sent troops into Donbas of Donbas, the region of eastern Ukraine, in the last several years. The Secretary of State of the United States said that we will, that essentially, I'm paraphrasing, but, but you may not come one foot into NATO territory. And they didn't, right? I do not think, I think the caricature of President Obama as weak and all of that is, is not fair and, and, and inaccurate, but it is worth noting that they, you know, with the red line in Syria is a different story, but the NATO line helped, yes. right? Kerry sent that message, our NATO allies joined us in sending that message. That, now, now, Latvia is a much less powerful country. You want to go to war with the Ukrainian military or the Latvian military? Obviously, the Ukrainian military is more powerful, right? But that scared off Putin, because we know that Russia has aims at those countries, right? And, and the, you, you can say NATO is weak, and you can, but, but the evidence that NATO works is that he didn't go into those countries. Now, that's cold comfort for Georgia, right? But that explains why, why, it's, this, important. why it's so important. If I could get 45 seconds to answer, why was the line drawn at the Baltics and then not to this next group of countries? Why was the line drawn there when NATO last expanded? Uh, that's a very good question. and um, I was hoping for a simple answer, not the, <laughs> the simple, podcast. A simple, <laughs> action, 
is that uh, we were not prepared at that time on a level of democratic institutions okay. as well and militarily in Latvia. I mean, these three Baltic states, uh, they were more developed in the way that they were, the Europeans felt more close to them than to Caucasus and other countries. Uh, they were against it, Russians. But then this step-by-step -step approach from the NATO uh, and uh, uh, the support they lended to them to develop, uh, they made them actually uh, possible candidates. And uh, to be honest, uh, one of the things that helped them was the 9-11, in an ironic way, uh, that uh, the counter-terrorist war and the allies getting together, uh, they said that now it's time to expand. So it was right after... To increase the, the buffer. In, yeah, so that, that happened at that time. So uh, then benefited from this will that was generated inside the alliance that, no, we need those capable allies in sight. Uh, so that was one of the reasons. So that's what I'm saying. God forbid that that kind of event will happen again, but we need to be prepared. Yeah. When the historical opportunity opens up, we never know what is going to happen, so we're going to prepare to join. Now, uh, there was also, together with the Baltics getting into the uh, NATO, there was a new de developed policy, red line policy over the Caucasus Mountain during the Clinton presidency. Unfortunately, that policy was abandoned when uh, Russians invaded Georgia. So that was also the wrong signal to send to Russia that they can disregard the agreements. And then even more so, Budapest Agreement was theory but The Budapest Agreement is that the UK, US, and Russia jointly guaranteed the territorial integrity of Ukraine while they gave up their nuclear weapon. Weapons. And, 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 and so everything that they put together as a structure, it's now ignored by Russian Federation. And, and, and the challenge, or the, or the important piece of this, is that NATO is the exception to that. NATO still, for whatever reasons, is, is powerful enough and projects enough power that people, that Russia, in this case, takes Article 5 seriously. Absolutely. You know, and whereas they don't take this, and, and, and partially because... The Baltics are defendable. I mean, we saw what happened after Crimea. We saw the mobilization of NATO forces, additional, you know, it's from still Poland, the U.S. On, from that time on, to bolster NATO defenses along. That was an easy message to, to send three small countries, but we were able to put more ships, troops, and, and, and airplanes. Yeah, there was a show of force. You know, right, and it was, but it was a NATO border, and it was very clear. Georgia's more complicated, right? I mean, you, you know, it's, it's further east. Uh, it's more isolated. It's not surrounded by other NATO countries. And we do, we do have a fleet of the Black Sea. We do have things like that. But we don't have, you know, it's, it's harder. And Ukraine is even harder, right? Because, you know, and, and, and because for Russians, right, Ukraine is much more important than the Baltics, right? And Georgia is of great symbolic importance. Right for some of the reasons we discussed, right? Georgia is kind of was kind of one of the jewels of the I, Soviet Empire. I understand Empire. the history of Ukraine coming in today, but I guess I'm learning more about Georgia but, and its importance. To but the, Ukraine to is, is, is physically like like they can't have they can't have this and and they know that that we're not we can't really send troops to Abkhazia to fight alongside you know the Georgians. So so they understand that. Whereas we can send troops a lot. And uh, that speaks uh, Lincoln about the um, lessons that they never learned in Caucasus. They have been there Russians for two more than two hundred years and. Uh, if they would have a completely different approach to Georgia, I mean, not trying to chop us right. up. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we would have been best friends with Russia. Right, there's like no... Like the and, Ukraine. And, so they're so counterproductive. Whatever they're doing, they're distancing us 
from themselves. And there is historic precedent for Georgia and Russia to get along, and there yeah. are commonalities. And frankly, you know, I mean, if, if things had gone different in Russia in the 90s, this would be a very different conversation, but yeah. history is, you know, shows the way it goes. I mean, I want to ask one last baseball question. I know that you had a couple questions for each other, but, but I, I, I know that I, I had read your piece uh, before Game 7. Uh, your piece, Joe, not a rock, because you didn't write anything before Game 7. Um, <laughs> I'd like to see it. <laughs> uh, no. But, but no, Joe has a newsletter uh, that, that uh, it comes out all the time. Is it supposed to be daily? It comes out all the time. It's absolutely not supposed to be daily. It feels like it, it's, it's kind of a whenever I feel like writing something, really, which in October is every six hours. Right, it's a great, <laughs> if you love baseball, it's a great newsletter. So I would encourage folks, no matter where you are in the world, it's online, get it, subscribe, read it. If you, it really, you get Joe's passion for the game. But like today's piece, which I didn't want to ask you about, but it was, I thought, a great discussion of Fans growing up now in the age where the baseball, well, we call it the baseball encyclopedia, but it's really baseball references online, right? When I was a kid, it was a book that you had to mm-hmm. update every few years. I have all, I have three of mine on my bookshelf upstairs, you know, including the very first one I bought used recently. Get a fourth, and you can defend the the NATO red line. <laughs> <laughs> and and and, but also you'd wait for like the the preview books to come yeah. out, right? You'd wait for you talk about Stratomatic. I played Appa growing up, but you'd wait for oh, the I'm new sorry. one. <laughs> I know, wasn't it? I should have played Stratomatic. <laughs> like, I didn't realize that. You know, just, that's what the local store had when I was eleven. But I should have played. So, right, in any case, the excitement of waiting in the mail yeah. for your baseball fix. But I don't want to talk about that piece. Although I just did. I want to talk about the piece. You wrote a piece before Game Seven of the World Series and Chicago Cubs playing the Cleveland Indians. Two really good teams. A great pitching matchup, um, and a game that was exciting, dramatic. Weird, extra innings, rain delays, like key home, real fantastic game, but also kind of a sloppy game, and also sometimes a mismanaged game. But I'm wondering, and you argued in this piece, I'm paraphrasing, this is the most anticipated game in baseball history. This is the game that is not the most important, the second most, the first was Jackie Robinson's debut, but the most important, at least as we think of it going in, who knows what will happen, the game hadn't been played yet. And I think that's a defendable Argument. I'm not sure what else games can. Well, maybe I was thinking Babe Ruth's first game with the Yankees or something. But I'm not sure at the time it had that kind of, you know, impact. Um, but I'm wondering about this postseason. There's a lot of in the media. You know, we now this will change how pitchers are used forever. Did we really learn anything, or is this just kind of recency bias? I mean, is there anything that really? I mean, it's a great postseason. I'm not. That's not the point. Well, we're not going to know until we see the next season play out. Uh, there were a lot of tactics and strategies employed in this postseason that we hadn't seen really in baseball in, in probably 30, 40 years. One of the things that's important to keep in mind is that the way, say, Andrew Miller was used in this postseason would not have been unusual 30 years ago. Exactly. exactly. It's a, it's a reversion of things we've, we've already seen. Exactly. Um, we're not going to know until we get to next year and next postseason. And it, it's personnel dependent. If Oh, I don't know. Uh, the Giants were to pl- make their way through the playoffs next year. With I this doubt bullpen, we'd see, they would use Madison Bum. <laughs> this is what I'm saying. Right, you right, would right. see the starting pitchers used a lot more than you'd see the relievers used. A lot of it was just these were teams that had relatively thin rotations and relatively deep bullpens. Or in the case of the, the Indians, yeah. a couple of guys they could really rely on. Um, and it also worked out. I mean, if, if the Indians lose one of those games to the Red Sox, and now they've burned Andrew Miller and Cody Allen, and they've lost the game, you know, how do we look at this differently? A lot of this was, we talk a lot about process and outcomes. And a guy like me doesn't care about outcomes. He can concern, are you doing it right? If you're doing it right, the outcomes will take care of themselves over time. It so happened that for this year, the process and the outcomes lined up pretty nicely. Buck Showalter didn't use uh, Zach Britton. The Orioles lost. Terry Francona used Andrew Miller. The Indians won. It, it, you hope that, because as much as we'll talk about process all we want, 
you need the outcomes to kind of pound it into people who aren't process people. Mm -hmm. So good process, good outcomes. You hope that this leads to positive change. I don't think we'll see radical changes during the regular season. Um, no, you're it's not, postseason strategy. But I do think that you'll see more of this in the postseason. We talked. I spent all of last year, the 2015 postseason, talking about uh, the third time around the order penalty, which loosely speaking means that the more a pitcher pitches, the worse he pitches. And it, there's a trigger the third. So you go through a batting order once, you go through a batting order Nine twice. Nine people in batting order. Yeah. That third time around, there seems to be a drop-off in performance. And we kept screaming, okay. take your starter out of the game. And the reason for that is that if you are just a, if yeah. you have a pitcher who has three or four pitches, the first time you're batting against that pitcher, you may not have seen all three or four pitches. You can get easily fooled. The second time, by the third time, you know what's coming. Mm-hmm. Right? The advantage shifts when it's not being new anymore. The batter gets more information. Yeah. There's a, the pitcher's more tired. The, the batter's more familiar with seeing him. And those things tend to come up harder in the third time around. And we didn't have to talk about that this postseason because even Kyle Hendricks had a four-run lead in Game 7 of the World Series, and Joe Madden, here he is, coming to the mound, tapping the arm. Uh, I I think we could see more of that in the postseason. By the way, there was, you know, the Giants um, had this weird moment, two two weird moments in the Giants' postseason. After the home run... Were they around long enough to have two weird... Yes, after after the Conor Gillespie home run at that game against the Mets, I was sitting behind the Giants' dugout. And I was sitting with... A section of these were you got tickets. These people got tickets to the teams. A lot of friends and family. The Giants fans, and the cheer was we were going nuts when he hit the home run. But then it was even bigger when we saw Bum coming out on deck because we knew that Boach was not going to screw up the, the bullpen, right? So, so in other, so he let the starting pitcher because he was so good come out and he finished the game. This is the best postseason starting pitcher around. In the game that they blew that lead against the Cubs. You know, Matt Moore was at 110, 120. That was, to me, I think outcome-wise, process-wise, I'm not sure he did the wrong thing. He didn't. I think he probably did the right thing. But it didn't work out. But the next day, you can imagine what's happening in the Bay Area sports radio shows and this kind of thing. And KNBR, which is the station that broadcasts the Giants games, brought in Tim Flannery, right? And, you know, Tim Flannery, is, he's, he played for many years with, with a guy who managed very close. And he just ripped these guys a new one. He was so staunch in his defense of Bochy. And it was part substance and part just like, this is his guy. Yeah, it's, it's personal loyalty. Yeah, yeah. But it was fun, yeah. interesting to hear it because he really laid it out. Flutter is an interesting cat. And he was too. angry. He plays the guitar. Yeah, he's a cool guy, but he was angry about this. Um, I had, I had another, another thought about this, which is that does the, does the Cubs winning the World I mean, obviously it changes a lot if you're a Cubs fan, but you know, something like almost at least one and a half, maybe a little closer to two times the number of people watched Game 7 of this World Series in 2014. Is that because it was the Cubs? Or is this, is this really a difference? A game seven always makes a difference. The deeper the not series, not two thousand fourteen though. I'm sorry. I'm saying compared to yeah, game but that was seven. the Royals. It didn't count. That's just for you, Randy. <laughs> uh, I, have, I have a good friend of mine who's a, a devoted Royals fan. We used to do a podcast together, so that was just a joke for his. Uh, it was also the Giants, thank you. Typically, t- well, again, you know, uh, typically the longer a best of seven goes, more people will watch. So if it goes to six, it goes to seven. The ratings go up, the interest goes up. So you get some of that here. I think the fact that it was two teams, the Cubs hadn't won since 1908, yeah. the Indians hadn't won since 1948, that was a big part of the story. But as I said a couple times during the World Series, I think this was the most relentlessly positive event for baseball probably since 1995 when Ripken's streak yeah. broke. It was young players, exciting players, homegrown teams, which tends to... You, it's easier to root for a team full of young guys who are, have come up through that organization 
than a team full of guys who are veterans who've been signed with money from mm. other teams. And the friendship and human size is palpable on the Cubs. Absolutely. I mean, and, really and, you know, it didn't and get covered as much. The Indians as well. Yeah. Um, you guys are Lindor and Ramirez who come off of the other organization. So, so quick question about the Indians. Then I want, then I want to give you two chance to ask the questions to each other. But a quick question about the Indians. What did they talk about during that rain delay? I've heard so much. Oh, the Jason Hayward speech. Like I guess. Jason speech. What are the Indians like? They, they Nobody cares because they lost. I know. But that's the point. But I, I'm, what did yes. they say? Like, oh, do I? Don't worry about it. Go out there, make you know, like let's blow the game. Of course, they didn't have that conversation, right? <clears throat> um, yeah, I, don't, I guess but we're not going to hear what Mike Napoli said to the because they lost, so. right? And that's the way it is. You know, of course, the victors write the write the history. So we've been talking for a while. I want to give each of you a chance because you raised a good question for Rockley, but Rockley, give a chance to, to ask each other a couple of questions, and then we'll they'll wrap up. But Rockley, do you have a question for Joe? Or uh, the question will be uh, when you come up to Georgia. You're invited, <laughs> so uh, please uh, plan and. Uh, I'm going to host you there, and you're going to find a lot of friends there. I so, to and that. in terms of the baseball game, I think uh, uh, pretty much uh, it was pretty a lot of information for me. So, uh, <laughs> not that into the this process and all the stuff. So, it was informative for me, and thank you for sharing this. I, I confess, I, I learned more about Georgia in the last half hour than I, uh, I, I honestly didn't know. And I don't, I, I'm sorry that makes me. Uh, you can read my first, my first book. Was terrible about, American, but it's about uh, Georgia. You can. Uh... It's fascinating to to hear because you know that all these places have these cultures. And it's funny. I have a, one of my best friends from from college married a, a woman whose family's Lithuanian. So I've heard a lot about Lithuania, and she went back there. She spent time there. This was right at the. This would have been right at the cusp of the transition. The wall came. Mm-hmm. Soviet Union folded in 19, late 1991, so this would have been not long after that. And it was, she described it as this bleak hellscape and tells stories about it to this day. So I guess all of my image of the former Soviet republics were, are based on her stories of Lithuania in 1992. Um, and you forget that these countries have lives and, and, and histories. And again, that's, that's some of that's, that's got it. It's entirely, I'm an American. And I'm a New Yorker, which means everything east of Second Avenue is where the dragons are. Right. So I just I'm fascinated to hear about this. And, and, and I appreciate your invitation, and I do hope to, to get out there. And as I said, though, you're gonna have to get a glove. And uh, definitely, to... we'll be prepared. We'll be prepared. But were you going to ask him about his more recent uh, political post? Right. Um, so in, uh, in in preparing preparing to meet you, you know, I read about you online and your history with, as a soldier, as as a politician, but. Uh, there was nothing passed about 2014, so yeah. I'm curious, what are you doing now? Well, uh, on October 8th, we had um, elections, and uh, my party lost the election. So, uh, well, I took the responsibility over this, and um, right now what I'm doing is uh, taking time off, thinking about uh, re-entering the politics later, political cycle, but now I want to do something uh, else that I was doing before. So I'm looking up uh, the possibilities of maybe contributing to the conflict resolution or some talks that will bring war-torn societies together because I have some background there uh, and experience. Also, I'm also looking for the business opportunities and other things that uh, I was not able to do until I was uh, uh, in the government service and in politics. Oh, you so. should come here. We let we let people in government do that now. <laughs> you can make all the money you want. That's right. Don't, don't. <laughs> And uh, what's most important thing happened this year that I have a grandchild now, granddaughter, oh, my son's uh, daughter, uh, on um, uh, October 14th. So, uh, really, right after the election? Yeah, so um, I'm uh, looking forward to be a granddad. Where's your, where's your 
My son is in Tbilisi. They are both there. And, uh, they were here for a while, right? Yeah, would be when I was here. And my daughter uh, studies here now, actually. I'm visiting her. So she studies at the Hunter School, Hunter College. So We just yeah, had a Hunter College professor on, on the pod last episode. Right. So I'm enjoying my time out now and uh, preparing for the next step. You're here in the States following the election. And, and again, this is me not completely understanding Georgian politics. That's not because you have to be here, right? No, it's, it's, no. it's not a thing where you go back and they find you at the airport and no. it's not like that. It's, no. I'm, I'm asking half serious here. I, I don't completely understand if, it's, if you can lose an election and not be an outcast. I, I, is it no, more I like here where you lose an election and you just go write a book? It depends. Yeah, it depends, yes. And, uh, well, uh, I think that uh, taking responsibility over the failed elections and there was we can discuss later how it happened and why it happened still... Uh, I have uh, ample of opportunities in the future to re-enter the politics because my party is continuing to uh, and also uh, because I mean, rebrand and uh, restructure. We're doing post-mortem what happened now, mm-hmm. so to make sure. Also, that if I can maybe answer your question more directly on part, he's he didn't criminal, and that's important because uh, the Republican Party, which also didn't pass the threshold, it's a parliamentary system. Uh, their leaders had made similar decisions to yours, uh, David Asupashvili, who had been Speaker of the Parliament and didn't get back into Parliament. And these are people who can get back into government, uh, parliament, political life when they want because they're not criminals. And the reason I say that is that there was, after the 2012 election, when a large opposition coalition came into office, Iraqi was one of the leaders of that coalition. His party was one of the well, participants in that coalition, as was uh, the Republican Party of Georgia, David's party. And... Some members of the previous government were indicted, including the former president, but the reason is they were criminals. I mean, and, and this is a challenge. I mean, this is a, it's a complicated political question. What do you do when there is criminality in the previous government? Because it is not a great statement for democracy that you indict your former leaders, right? It's also not a great statement for democracy that you leave, let crimes go unpunished. Um, so it's, it's complicated. But, but Iraqli, I mean, you're, he's here on business and work and seeing family is not... Okay, I just was curious. Okay. I, if, if I could ask one other... Please, sure. You and I are peers, uh, mm-hmm. 43, I'm 45, which means you're literally actually the first person I've met who grew up on the other side of the Iron Curtain during yeah. the Cold War. And I'm just... I guess I, over here it was all tear down this wall and the day after and reds. I mean, these are cultural touchstones that I'm sure don't mean mm-hmm. anything to you. I'm just... I guess I'm curious as to what it was like to be a 13-year-old boy in Georgia or yeah. and, and, and what you were I hearing guess, about us over here. Yeah, that's a good question. And um, I'm pretty sure that the being raised in Georgia during the Soviet Union is a little bit different, was different than being raised up somewhere in Russia because the culturally and identically-wise, Georgians were always kind of thinking that they were occupied. They were not organic part uh, of the Soviet Union. Even my father, who was a military and who was in Afghanistan for two years, I remember him talking to me that, look, one day this is going to change. It was in mid-80s. Nobody would have thought that in five, six years everything would uh, crumble. So I think we were always identified ourselves with not the Soviet Union, but the wider European culture, uh, historically-wise as well. So I, uh, uh, we enjoyed uh, Hollywood movies, and I remember there was a once a day. It was either Saturday or Sunday. Once a week. Well, once a week, I'm sorry. 
there was a program on a state-run television, uh, Illusion. That was, uh, and uh, they were uh, actually putting up the Hollywood movies like Magnificent Seven, all of that. We were raised on this. And this American culture came in before that we actually started interacted, interacting with U.S. So we were pretty much fascinated about what was going on in the United States. So it was like... So a, you identified more as a Georgian yes, than necessarily so. as... I don't know, it would have... Soviet. Yeah. Soviet, Almost yes, Soviet. Thank, you, thank you. Yeah, we're very different culture-wise. And we were getting along with Russians, people, but we were... And Georgia was a dissident country we had all the time strive for the independence. We were preserving our language when they wanted to take it out from our constitution in 79. Uh, and unfortunately, we had a lot of uh, dissident people uh, and families sent to the Siberia Gulag. So it was always part of our culture. And, and this is further complicated. I mean, one, one story that I think captures this, my uncle, my mother's sister's husband of 50-odd years, is French. And when I first went to Georgia, he said that one of someone in his family who was French, where they had more access to the Soviet Union, went over there on an engineering-related project okay. and, and came back you know, to France. And my uncle called him and said, so you know, what was it like over there? Because he couldn't go there. And, and, uh, and he said, you know, those Georgians are crazy. And my uncle said, why? And he said, because they think they're going to be living in an independent Georgia someday. Right? That, that's but the point is, the, what I was saying. the spirit was, was, was really there, there right? Always. But the, also the, the complicated piece is that there were Georgians were disproportionately represented in Soviet leadership and in the positions of repression, right? So we all know Stalin, but Beria, who frankly makes Stalin like a humanitarian, was also Georgian, right? I mean, these are two of yeah. the worst, I mean, in plain English, two of the worst people in human history, I think we'd Actually, say. Actually, uh, let me just... And, and, but, 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 that, what, but it's complicated because Georgians weren't spared because of that. They were not spared at all. In fact, probably the opposite, right? So anyway... So we were independent, just for your information, from uh, 1918 to 1921. It was our first republic. Because of the Georgians being in the leadership of Russia, like Stalin and others, they occupied us. So I guess they wanted, they thought that the Georgian being part of Russian Empire or the Soviet Union would have made more reason for them to stay in the leadership mm -hmm. positions there. So, and also, Stalin exterminated almost 60% of Georgian intelligentsia at that time, all the people that were yeah. intellectual. So we were hurt by this more than anybody else. Uh, but that's the history. That's the, the history. also the World War II history in Georgia, yeah. which is significant because... Yeah. Well, 300,000 Georgians went to the war when the population was 3 million. But were killed in the war. Yeah, killed in war. 10% of the population. Yeah. Oh yeah. So a whole generation... Stalin wanted, yeah. Stalin wanted us to be on the front. But so, in, in the picture, uh, and so, so the, the, in the famous picture, right? Yeah, on the Reichstag. Mm -hmm. On the Reichstag, planting the Soviet flag, it's a Georgian. So uh, there's a lot of history, and I'm glad that I was able to share this with you and those who will uh, listen. And, and again, we have to stay optimistic. And uh, the reason uh, that is also we studied from our own history is that uh, you... Fall down, you get up and move on. That's how we survived these three millenniums. We survived every invader, actually, who came to invade us. So I'm pretty sure that uh, we're going to be a successful country. Uh, we deserve this. I believe that our kids and my kids uh, deserve to be in a better country than I used to be. And uh, in that regard, we see the United States as the biggest 
friendliest country that we need by our side. So hopefully that's going to continue. I admire your optimism. I admire the efforts that you put into building up Georgia. I, it's a guy who's spent his life talking about sports. Uh, I'm just honored to get to talk to somebody who spent their life trying to build something. I'm, I'm no, pleasure, pleasure was all mine. Thank you, Rockley. Thank you, Joe, for this great conversation. Thank you for thanks, inviting us. So again, thanks to Joe and thanks to Rockley for a great conversation. I will let you know if Joe and Rockley and I ever make it to Georgia to, to play or talk or do baseball work over there. And uh, once again, my name is Lincoln Mitchell. You can follow me on Twitter at Lincoln Mitchell. You can follow Joe on Twitter at uh, Joe underscore Sheehan and Arakli on Facebook at either Alasanya Arakli, Alasanya Free Democrats, or Arakli.alasanya.3. Thank you.